A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have with me Mina Lele. Good morning, Mina. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Minal is, um, well, I, I don't want to say former. I mean, you, you are a consummate entrepreneur, but you started your life as an engineer and still employ a lot of engineering in what you do. Gone through a number of transformations. Um, you know, you've, helped, you've helped kids. You've, you've done a lot of things with the work that you've done. There's, there's a lot to, to Minal's story. And, um, and so I, th- I think it's going to be just a great interview today. I'm looking forward to, to hearing the greater detail. But um, as, as you know from, from our, our conversation a little while ago, we always like to start with a little bit of history. And so I wonder if you could um, share your story with our audience. How did, you, how did you get to become the consummate entrepreneur that you are today? Sure. The, you know, I, I, the, my youth was a really middle-class youth in New Jersey. Um, that's, I suppose, is not so interesting of a story. Although um, my high school, weirdly, has produced a number of entrepreneurs who you've definitely heard of. Um, and which, which is sort of just random. And so I will say that maybe there was something there about the, you know, the mix of people I was around, um, in just when I was growing up, but I think, you know, where the story starts is really, is just, I think it's a bit of a, is my personality. Like I remember in seventh grade, I guess, I guess I just used to ask so many questions all the time. And I remember that the kids, the other kids started calling me the question queen. And I just, I just always felt like I needed clarification. You know, when the teacher would ask, say to do something, I always had a question. And I can totally see why that annoyed everybody. Um, but, you know, for me, there's, there's two big things always are, but why? You know, somebody says to do something, but why? And I also always want to know, like, well, what's the goal? Like, what, what is it that you actually want? So if a teacher says, yeah, I remember the teacher, teacher is saying something like, I want you to write a story, which is a very vague request of a child and you're like well what's the goal like are you trying to get me to write as many words as possible is this about vocabulary are you trying like what are we trying to do here and i guess by nature that sort of led me into engineering and and maybe that has something to do with um some of my english um and uh, i guess the softer social sciences teachers maybe discouraged me in some sense from pursuing one of those fields in college uh, I, you know, I was naturally pretty good at math, um, or I, I think I liked the certainty of math sure. is really what it was. I love the certainty of the sciences. And I think maybe that speaks to that nature is if you don't, if you always are asking why, but and you're doing chemistry or physics or something, and there's an answer at the end, because if you ask why in an English class, you know, I remember how frustrated I would get when the teacher would talk about the symbolism and the great Gatsby or something. And they'd say, well, you know, like the blue door there means that the person that's entering it is sad. And I was like, well, really, do we really know that the blue door, that the, they wrote a blue door because they wanted us to think that's that, or are you adding that layer? That seems arbitrary. Yeah, maybe they just like blue, right? Exactly. Like, how, how do we know that's true? Um, like to people and, you know, they would tell you, oh, but look at all the instances of blue in this, you know, in this chapter or whatever. And I was like, I don't think anyone writes like that. They think ahead of time. How many times I want to talk about sadness? I'm going to add blue in a bunch, you know. But anyway, so I, I really pursued the physical sciences because I just thought, well, this is these have real answers. And, um, you know, and then it was sort of a natural progression to a career. I think where one of the first transformations I, I went through is in college, I had the opportunity to work at the USDA in a lab and we were working on how E. coli transfers in samples of spinach or something else, right? And how it stays alive. And I was, you know, you're sitting there like every other lab person, you're pipetting tiny drops of E. coli solutions into these millions of or thousands of little tiny vials. And that was the day I realized like, oh God, I'm never going to be a scientist. Like I, I have no patience for this. I have, you know, cause all mm-hmm. of that research is a 20 year timeline. Yeah. And so that was actually the first realization is that though I actually want all the answers, I have no patience for the long 20 year cycle that, and really where I love to come in is right at the end when we're saying we've kind of figured out most of the answers and then we're translating into, so what, what does it mean? How do we use this information? Um, I worked a little bit in consulting 
And that was an interesting finding about the opposite end of it, right? Like you, you do work for a company and you give them a lot of ideas, but you never get to find out if they actually did it. Sure. And what, and then, so what, so what happened? Um, and so I, you know, my first company that, uh, I was lucky enough to be on the the founding team of this company in, in orthopedics. And it was a fascinating space because we had discovered that most knee pain doesn't actually come from what people thought it did. People thought it came from this loss of cartilage and, this doctor had discovered that actually people were getting these tiny stress fractures inside their bones. And that's, if you think about it, a fracture hurts anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So most pain in joints was actually coming from these fractures. And, um, you know, I got to a seven year ride there. You know, I really focused on, or what I did at the company was a lot of the clinical research, just figuring out again, the, you know, so we treat people and then do they actually get better is people would have goals, right? Because we, we do surgeries and we think about, okay, we want to fix the pain, but for some people, the goal is actually something much more amorphous. Like my goal is to be able to dance at my daughter's wedding. Mm-hmm. So what is the thing that gets me there? Because you can have a major surgery, but then you might not be healed in time for said daughter's wedding. Sure. And so really thinking through a lower impact surgery and who is the right patient for that? Somebody who wanted you know, a chance to avoid the bigger surgery and what were their goals and how did that, you know, how did that play into it and, and who else would care? And so kind of asking all these questions and we did the same thing at a vascular medicine company. We had this technology that would help you draw blood from peripheral IV catheters and that's cool, you know, but, but again, you're asking like, well, okay, like, is it that big of a deal to stick a person one more time? Who cares? Well, kids care. Kids care a lot how many times you stick them with the needle. That can make all the difference between a horrendous hospital stay for them and one that's, you know, I remember the first time we were able to use that. This is a child who's, you know, chronically ill, so they're in the hospital all the time. And this is a child who, and it's, it's horrible, actually. I, I, I hope that nobody ever has to spend time in a pediatric ICU. Um, I still, like, have nightmares about it, but the you know, when they have to draw blood just to get basic information on this child, it can often take five people, four people just to hold the kid down. So imagine that the kid multiple times a day is being pinned to their bed so that somebody can take blood from them. And we went into a child's room one day after the first time using our technology and he just stuck his arm out, said, go ahead, no big deal. And he kept watching TV. And that, that was amazing, right? Like that's, that's such a huge, like the, the mom was crying because what would have been a traumatic 30 minutes, three times a day turned into no big deal. Um, and we also found out that, you know, nurses and doctors were often leaving these central lines in people. So these lines directly into their heart because it's easier to draw blood off these patients. And, but if you leave a line in, you can infect that person. And so if we take them out earlier, if we give the doctor or a nurse, I should say another way to draw blood off this patient that doesn't, you know, that works and doesn't hurt them, they'll take out that central line one or two days earlier. And we can reduce infection rates, right? So it's all these things that you might not really think about. Um, and, and, you know, and so re- really now where I am is working on in the allergy space and with this, we're trying to prevent food allergies. But the realization that drove me to create this company was after I found out, you know, my first kid has a whole bunch of food allergies. And after I found out that they were preventable, I remember standing in the kitchen with my husband and we were trying to do what we're supposed to do to prevent food allergies in our younger son. So we don't want him to have the same feeling. And, and my husband has a graduate degree, you know, from Berkeley and I'm decently educated. And we were like, this is so freaking hard. It's so much harder than they make it sound. And I, and I remember thinking like, babe, we have so many resources at our, at our disposal. Like if we can't do this, what is, what is a person doing that has to work two jobs that has multiple kids that's a single parent that doesn't have ton, you know disposable income like why are we making this so hard for other people and that was really you know sort of that moment that kind of led me to do that and and this isn't totally an answer to your question i suppose but i feel like the the running trend is in my life is like asking these questions like why why does it have to be so hard why can't it be better why can't we do it in a different way like what are we really trying to achieve and could we do things in a way that gets us there yeah well i i think you know that's um i think that's the key to entrepreneurial success 
is is inquisition. It's it's asking. It's 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 being curious. I, I remember um, this is kind of a stupid example, I guess. I I don't know why, but but for some reason, I as you were telling that last part of the story, I thought about the movie, um, the animation movie, Robots, and. Um, I remember watching it with my kids and I, I couldn't tell you 99% of the movie, but I, I remember one comment and it was the, the guy who was the, the, you know, the, the, the businessman that everybody looked up to or whatever. And he always said, find a need, fill a need. And that, that was like the slogan in the movie. And I thought, what a great kind of entrepreneurial comment, find a need, fill a need. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people want to just, you know, oh, you know, we could do this better, we can do that better, and you know, and and they're not asking that question, and they'll have good success, marginal success, but the greatest successes come from the ones that solve a problem that that people hadn't thought about, or maybe had thought about, but nobody had taken action on. I, I one friend of mine. Um, used to come up with ideas all the time and, but he never took any action. And I can't, I can't tell you how many times, you know, over, over maybe a beer one evening, he would say, yeah, I see that. I, I came up with that idea five years ago, you know, and now somebody else is doing it and, and he's all bitter. And I'm like, I don't know how you can be bitter about it. You didn't do anything about it. Right. You got to take some action somewhere here in the process. Uh, totally. It's it. Yeah. You know, uh, I, as I always say ideas are a dime a dozen. Right. But it's, it's all in the execution and, and, and to a large extent in the perseverance around that execution. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's, it, you know, being inquisitive is, is key. And, you know, it, it's funny because I think about, um, I think about some of the structures. I actually had this conversation with somebody else recently about the things that have gone into play that are almost restricting our kitchen kids from asking questions. Right. Um, you know, little things like, uh, well, I had an uncle who always said, you know, children are meant to be seen, not heard, you know, basically mean go sit in the corner and be quiet. Don't ask so many questions. And, you know, then, you know, you hear all these philosophies, curiosity killed the cat, you know, that, that, that's a you know terrible saying. It's, it's like, don't ask questions. It, we, we seem to be working in our society uh, away from asking questions. And yet here you were, you had, you, you just, overrode that and you still ask questions today do you promote your kids to ask questions i do i do i definitely do because i got i got a lot of that when i was growing up as the you know stop asking questions stop questioning everything like one of the ones that always drove me crazy this is again this is sort of a random story but i grew up in a my parents are from india and in a culturally south asian household and so they would still celebrate indian holidays or we still do today but one of the things that drove me absolutely nuts is i, I don't personally like Indian um, women's clothing. I find it very uncomfortable and I hated wearing it. And it used to drive me crazy that my male cousins just got to wear shorts and t-shirts mm -hmm. at any function. They got to wear whatever they wanted. And I always had to be in, you know, so they called it a, you know, a whatever the saris or, or whatever. And I just, I, can't, I would always ask my parents like, why? I don't understand. Like, why do I have to get dressed up? And they're like, well, it's, you know, it's polite. It's this and that. And I was like, well, okay, but then shouldn't the same rule apply to this other person? Yeah. And, and they never had a good answer, answer for this. And, and I'd say like, well, why does it matter? And they're like, you know, if they said politeness or whatever, I said, well, can't I dress in a nice way that's respectful of the event and yet be comfortable and this just sort of boggled their minds and they just sort of always told me to be quiet and it drove me crazy i hate it i'm still mad about it to this day and so yes i asked my children i encourage my children to question us all the time and if they if they point out a place where we are logically inconsistent or you know doing things for arbitrary reasons we're okay with them calling us on it and some, sometimes the answer is okay, it's okay to be arbitrary like sometimes we just you know we don't have a great reason why it's a yeah. and not b we just yeah. kind of have to move on but i encourage them to call us on it because i mean why should they do stuff that doesn't matter and some, sometimes they'll point it out like well, why are you making me eat this thing can i eat this other thing there's no added work here or whatever else and i'm like hey fair enough go for it excellent excellent I, I i it's so important i think i you know i'm i'm lucky that i've got two inquisitive kids myself and uh, adults now uh well, one one's still in college and um the other one is is graduated but both engineers also so you know inquisitive and and doing their thing um you know actually so we've just got two minutes left before our break but but i want to ask you kind of a random side question and we'll come back to some of this other stuff after the break but um you mentioned you know you said uh, well you know boring kind of, you know, normal middle-class upbringing, you know, except I went to a high school that spun off a lot of entrepreneurs. Well, um, who are some of the entrepreneurs we might be familiar with? Um, well, the, 
the, the, the guy who founded box.com mm-hmm. was, I think a, two years ahead of me in school. The, the guy who started blue apron, oh, yeah. uh, one of the guys who started blue apron, um, is a friend of mine. He was my year. Um, there was, um, you know, I think they, in, they're more in their specialty places of another friend who's exited a couple companies, um, the founder of, or not the founder, like the guy who runs like nuts.com, which oh, is yeah. a company I deal with now. Um, and there's, there's a, there's a handful of other random ones, but yeah, they were just, do you think, there. There were, I, so, so you said, you know, maybe it was just being in the same environment, but, but do you think if you reflect back on it and, and if, if you don't have an answer, it's okay. It's just, this is again, random, but do you think there was something in the school environment that promoted kind of more entrepreneurial behavior or thinking like free thinking, anything like that? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, the school is probably going to be mad at me for saying this. I don't know that it was like the school or anything anyone did. I think it's one of those random states. Like, uh, one of the friends who was actually over here, she lives in Philly and she, she and I were talking about this and we were saying how we sort of had the opposite of bad influences. Like I, I remember I have this particular memory of I got an A minus in I don't know, one of my math classes or something. And I was talking to a friend about it and she said, why did you get an A minus? You can do better than that. There's no reason you should get an A minus. Like, she's like, you know, this material, you should have gotten an A plus. Yeah. And I felt so cowed in that moment, but that was sort of the, it wasn't, it wasn't a competitive environment. It was like a mutually encouraging environment that we were all in. And I don't know why that was the, um, you know, the, the, the community and the, um, the way we all acted, but it just, I don't know, maybe just organically ended up that way. Well, you know, I, I, I do believe that you get certain kind of cultural elements, whether it's a culture in a school culture, and, and I'm not talking obviously racial cultures, I'm talking about the, the environmental culture. Right. And if you were at a place that was, you know, environmentally um, positive and positive thinking and positive focus, I mean, we hear all the stories the other direction. I think that that's pretty amazing and that can set you up for, for great success. So we are at the end of our first segment here. Um, we've, got to, we've got to take a little bit of a break. So stay tuned, everyone. We're going to carry on this story as soon as we get back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Mina Lele. So, uh, Mina, I'm kind of curious. I want to go on one other detour before we kind of more get into the business. Uh, You know, having an Indian background and... um, 
you know, I, I know that, that, that some of the, some of the cultures, you know, especially some of the Asian cultures, but even, you know, if I think about my background as being Greek and a number of other things, and I think about some of the, the, what we would call the old country ways versus, you know, being more American, um, you know, there, there can be cases where, you know, daughters may not be treated as equally as sons or, you know, the, the cultures don't look at women the same way as, as we might hear, you know, we're, we're working, you know, working on, you know, having more equality here. I'm just kind of curious that growing up in an Indian family, you mentioned having to wear the, the sari when your cousins didn't have to, when they could wear shorts. Um, were there any other restrictions um, or, or how did your parents support you in what you were trying to do? And what were maybe some of the, the hurdles and barriers that you had to personally overcome in order to, to move forward? In general, you know, my parents were incredibly supportive. And I would say that I don't, you know, I brought up that anecdote because it was a relatively rare thing. Um, I don't think my parents really constrained me in any way. They were, um, you know, they put us in sports. We did, we did various things. It's just, I think the most Indian thing about it was that academics was like the most, you know, the highest order priority thing in the house on any given day. Um, and, and so there's a, there's definitely a big cultural bit to that. I think, I think where it came in was this sort of this expectation sort of like weirdly my parents would always weave in this thing that were like well you know don't forget though that at some point you're going to be primarily responsible for taking the kids or don't forget that you're going to have a husband and he might not like it that you know you're xyz or whatever and i feel like these things are not they weren't really trying it was almost like these comments would come up off the cuff it's Mm -hmm. because we we all carry our biases and our, our cultural learning so deep that we don't even realize we're doing it you know i bet my my parents would not even remember ever saying any of these things sure. to me but it definitely had an effect uh, but i would say as opposed to <laughs> it had the unintended effect of just making me more angry about it like i instead of it i me retaining it and saying like oh okay well let me you know let me worry more about my hair so i meet a nice boy like instead i was like well screw that i'm not gonna do that i refuse to live by those under those rules and if if i have to you know if i have to be in a marriage where this one person refuses to do their part of it i don't need to get married i don't need that like i would rather just not and um i was just fiercely independent in that way you know and i so i think in that sense that whatever they had sort of backfired um but, uh, and I, I think that's definitely a, a trait of mine that almost all of my aunts and uncles or anything else will tell you that, that I've always been deeply frustrated by social and they, they carry over into America too. Let's not forget these expectations of sure. people just because of their different genders. Um, and there's some things that we can never change, right? There's only half of us that are fundamentally capable, for example, of creating other humans. And so that's, that's not a burden that we can share evenly. Fine. <laughs> but, um, you know, and I will always be constrained. Like I always joke, like my husband, no matter what he does, right. He'll always be three times as strong as me. I can lift, I can do that every single day and I'll never catch up to it. But, but that being said, all the things that we can control that are just, we can so much of our lives, 90% of our lives, maybe more. It's just like, we could just all be humans. Yeah. And, um, I think that I've always pushed for that. Um, but in the end, you know, I will say one thing is that it, that sort of thing has really helped me because medicine in general, engineering, business, and I went to undergraduate business school and all of the companies I've worked at have always been easily 60, 70% men. It has been a hundred percent men in the executive leadership. It's been, you know, very often the women that were there were in secretarial roles or something else. And uh, if I work with orthopedic surgeons, right, like 90 something percent of them are men. But I have, I think one of the things that has really helped me succeed is one, all of these men have always been really willing to mentor me and um, see me as someone who, you know, is deserving of their mentorship, which is the only reason I have ever, I have succeeded to whatever extent I have is, you know, under the wings of other, these guys um, for which I'm very thankful. And, um, you know, I feel like I've always been able to go toe to toe, maybe because of this sort of obstinacy that my parents encouraged in me by accident. I've been able to go toe to toe with a, a lot of people that they're not used to actually having a woman, especially in their 20s or whatever else, just kind of like hold her ground. And thankfully, for the most part, that has created respect rather than distaste. 
Yeah, you know, and I, I think what you're describing, it's it, it's an aspect of leadership, and we talk a lot about leadership on this show, and there's there's all different forms of it, but this, um, you know, you use the word obstinance. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are better words. You know, it's it, it's 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 almost like resilience. It's a push. It's 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 all these things that. Um, is present is present in every successful entrepreneur I've met. You don't just you know you don't just oh here's an idea and let's do it and you know everything will be fine. I it was somebody um, my wife is actually sharing a story. We were talking about um, um uh, we were my daughter was home this week and um you know for those who might be listening afterwards my daughter who goes to Tulane University they just had the the hurricane and. School is physically shut down for a few weeks. She'll be going back. And so she's been doing classes from home. And we just got to talk about some of the other kids that she knew and where they went to college. And and the one family where, you know, the the sons just, each one of them in succession, it started with the first one decided, I'm not going to go to college. I'm just going to stay home and become an internet, um, internet millionaire. You know, I mean, I don't need college. I've got an idea. I'll get it. And, um, and you know, the they're, they're not getting anywhere. And it's because they're just, they're sitting at home trying to do something. I don't mean to be, I don't, I don't mean to knock them, but it takes hard work. It takes, it takes persistence. And sometimes what was going on, um, in their cases, well, they, they'll just float a balloon out there and wait and see what happens. Um, this kind of this, the, what you're describing, this, this curiosity, this drive, this, you know, I'm not going to let somebody hold me down. That is a mark of success. A college or not or anything. I mean, you know, education, you know, I'm a believer in it. It'll, it'll take you a lot of places, but only if you use it. I know a lot of heavily college educated people that, you know, they just want to sit back and wait for the world to give it to them. It doesn't work that way. And you took that leap. You took that leap not too long ago in starting the company Little Mixins. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned the, you know, the, that your kid having the allergy was a, um, was a catalyst for this. Um, I, I, I've hearing other catalysts, this desire to do this, but, but this is your company now. You're not, I mean, you may have investors, you know, I'd love to know what, you know, what you did to get it started, but, but you, you know, you're running the show here now. It's no more working for anybody else. Right. That's correct. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what was that like? You know, tell me what it felt like to make the initial leap and, you know, were there any fears along the way? Was there confidence? And, um, and, and actually I'd love you to share a little bit with our audience, even what little Mixins is, because I think it's a great concept. Sure. Uh, you know, to answer your first question about the fear and what was it like, I will say that I am, I think one of the reasons kind of going back to the point about, you know, being able to go toe to toe with people is I try and be really, really prepared. Right. So one of the reasons it's, it's not just, I think that if you go toe to toe to some with someone, you better know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so people, when I'm may be being obstinate or persistent or whatever the nicer word for it is, it's, it's, you know, it's, um, it's eventually they're like, all right, she knows what she's talking about. She did her homework, right? And so I will say that it was less scary than it could have been for, I think, a lot of people because I really did my homework. And so part of the homework was before I started my own company, I was either the first employee or in the founding team of two other startups. So I, the buck didn't stop with me, which yeah. meant all the stress wasn't on me because it was somebody else's fault at the end of the day. But I was there. I saw how it, you know, I saw how the, the sausage gets made, if you will. And I, I would never have started my own company had I not been through those experiences because I would not have felt prepared. But having been through it a couple of times, I really felt like I understood what needed to be done. And I had, and I had mapped out a five year plan, you know, of like, what do we need to achieve at each, each stage? And, and so far we've I've really stuck to the plan. Um, the other side of it is same thing. I, I, I talked to people and to we'll see if they were willing, you know, would people be willing to fund this before I took the leap? Right. I didn't, I didn't leap until I had some funding raised. Mm -hmm. And the other, the last big thing is I, I was self funding it. I was working on it because you have to, you know, you have to get somewhere first, but the big thing I did was, um, before I went full-time at the company, I had a product and I got a booth at the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I went and I set up a booth there because I'd done, a, I don't know, 50 trade shows before in sure. other, you know, in other contexts. But so I just got a booth. I, you know, I set it up and I talked to 300 doctors over the course of whatever it was, two days, three days. And I asked them, I told them what we were doing. And I said, is this a product you need? Do you think this is something your patients need or is this unnecessary? And you know, the overwhelming majority. And when I say overwhelming, it was like one person was like, 
I'm not sure. Everybody else was like, oh yeah, no, we definitely need this. And we haven't been, we haven't been talking to patients about this concept because we didn't know what they would do. And only when that happened, did I take the leap? So when I was sure, you know, that there were some, there were, there were some there, there. And so to answer your other question, like, what is little mix? What are we trying to, what are we even doing here? Um, you know, the, idea, the whole idea is that food allergies are largely preventable. So we understand at some fundamental level, food allergies are a mistake the immune system is making where it's attacking, you know, your classic peanuts, eggs, whatever, when it should just ignore them and let you eat them happily. And so it turns out that in early infancy, right, one of the most confusing things about food allergy is that it, it comes on so early. Like most children will actually develop their allergies between six to 10 months old. And if you think about a baby at that age, they haven't done very much, right? So it's it's clearly not like food allergies aren't caused by alcohol or they're not caused by you know, all the things that babies are right. definitely not doing. Right. And so, so we realize that we actually have this window to train tolerance. Like we can, the immune system is learning just the same way that a baby is learning to move its hand, to track eyes, to smile at faces, to risk, you know, respond, um, make the same sound back to an adult that they just made, you know, all these things, your brain is learning, your immune system is learning. And so you have this window, which you can train, the baby's immune system to, to tolerate these foods instead of reacting to it. And the right, right way to think of it is like, you know, right around six months, same age, the baby starts maybe trying to crawl sta- stairs, right? And so some babies will naturally just crawl the stairs correctly. Mm-hmm. Some babies will fall and do it incorrectly, right? But you have an opportunity to show your baby how to get off a couch properly, how to do the stairs properly, to turn around backwards and do the stairs that way, Right. And in that same way, you can train their immune system to not react. And and what it takes is basically a very repeated, right? So you, every week you feed the baby a certain amount of the peanut protein. So what the studies show is about two grams of the peanut protein or other protein, egg, milk, whatever have you. And if the baby's eating it every week, so repeatedly, and they're knocking it on their skin, they're getting it in their mouth, in their stomach, they kind of train this tolerance. And so that's really the... The core product line is called early allergen introduction. So we're introducing it to the baby early and we train tolerance. Sure. So when I, when I took a peek at your website, I, I saw the different allergens, right? So, so peanuts, obviously you said eggs. I think there was wheat. There was, there were, there were, there were four or five. The tree little? nuts. We do all the tree peanuts, nuts and yeah. actually we, yeah, we have a product that gets you soy, sesame, your tree nuts, eggs, um, and a peanut. And the only ones we don't really cover are milk because that's in formula mm-hmm. and milk is already an infant safe food. And wheat, again, baby cereal already exists and it's uh, already wheat. safe. So we all, we make all the foods that don't exist in safe forms for infants. So should, um, should I mean, in theory, should every parent be doing this with their, with their kid, with all of these? I mean, you know, I mean, again, I can think like if I go back, you know, 20 years and mind you, I was at an age where maybe I didn't have a lot of people with kids, but I didn't hear a lot about food allergies. It seems like there's so many of them now. Um, so, you know, and maybe I'm just more aware, but, um, but is this something that, that, I mean, should everybody be doing this? Yeah. So today the recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the USDA, the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and the National Institutes of Allergic and Immune Disease all say that this should be universally done. So every baby, because we are, ve- we do not know how to predict today, which children are high risk. It's family history, interestingly, is not what makes you high risk. The only thing that makes you high risk today is the, is that the baby has eczema before they start solid foods. Mm-hmm. So that makes you high risk. But even then, because not that many kids have eczema or, or a smaller percentage do. And so then most allergies actually happen in children, just law of numbers, right? Most allergies are actually end up happening in children without the eczema, just because there's so many more kids without the eczema. And so everybody should do it. It should be a universe. It's literally in the guidelines from these organizations that it should be a universal solution. And you're getting to another point, which is, well, it didn't exist before. And, and so we do actually understand that what the underlying, so early allergen introduction is not solving the underlying cause of food allergies. Food allergies didn't start happening alone because people were not feeding their kids these foods. Something which we can talk about later, if you want, is something deeper has changed that's caused this propensity for food allergies. But we know that 80% of food allergies can be prevented by doing this thing. Yeah. And so actually, I really want to talk about that. Um, We're already up on our next break, which is amazing. So so when we come back, I want to pick up where we left left off, um, because I do want to I I do want to hear your opinion on on what's causing more of this these days and why why we're having to be um, so much more careful. So um, stay tuned, everyone. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Mina Lele. So before we went to the break, we were just starting to get into the conversation about, you know, allergies and the rise in allergies. And, you know, you clearly are doing your research on this. Um, what, what do you attribute it to? Why are there so many more today than there were, let's call it 20 or even 50 years ago? So I have to tell you, this is, this is a fundamental why question that I have become one might call obsessed with. And I can't stop thinking about it and I can't stop researching and reading about it, right? And so, um, I, I guess, I, not to make this a plug, but actually I just um, am finishing up a eight series, eight episode, 30 minute, each episode is about 30 minutes narrative podcast mm-hmm. where I'm interviewing all these experts basically getting to this why. And um, that, that asks and answers that question. And the, because I think it's something everyone really wants to know at the end of the day. And the why, if you know, if you want the spoiler here, the why cannot be attributed to a single, you know, it's, it's not as clean as like, Oh, it's asbestos. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we do know that at the, what's happening to these children, right? So their immune systems, as I said before, are making a mistake. 30 years ago, nobody's, or the, uh, you know, very few people's immune systems were making that mistake. Okay. Great. So we got that far. What causes the immune system to make a mistake? Well, there's basically two. There's, we know that the immune system is, some people call it like a, like a quality control system, right? It's supposed to kick out parasites. It's supposed to fight off viruses. It's supposed to do all these things. So what we understand from that is that the immune system is attributing the idea that this thing is a virus or a parasite. And we actually, our body has ways to identify a virus or a parasite or something, right? So now the body is saying, okay, this peanut is a parasite. Okay, so that gets us to that question. Why? Why is the body saying this peanut is a parasite? And it turns out one fundamental thing that's shifted is our barriers have gotten weaker. Mm. So like uh, recently I was just talking to a doctor, an immunologist about this, and he's like, the context matters. So it's not just the presence of these lipids or whatever on the parasite that tells us the parasite is there. It's the context. A parasite boring through your skin should scare your immune system. Today, our skin barrier, our gut barriers, our, our um, lung barriers are breaking down and things are getting through that didn't used to. And so when something gets through your barrier, like if, it, if, you, if you have broken skin from eczema or something else and peanut gets through your skin, your body should freak out about it because your body's designed to freak out about something getting through your skin or your lungs. So what's causing that barrier disruption? Like a lot of chemicals in our detergents, Air pollution is a huge cause of it. To a large extent, it's the diet and food we're eating that's actually screwing up our microbiomes because the microbiomes, I treat them like barnacles on a ship hull, right? They actually create a layer. This isn't exactly correct, but it's a good mental image. Yeah, no, I get it. They yeah. create a, 
yeah, they create a layer of our, of our barrier and without them, if we have the wrong ones. Um, and so all these, these kind of multifactorial things are happening. And so our barriers are weaker. Things are getting through that didn't used to. And our bodies are, you know, we call it a mistake the immune system's making, but in some sense, it's actually the immune system acting appropriately when the system it was set up for has completely changed. And so interestingly, you know, again, so like I said, um, that, you know, even in this business, it's already seen this major transformation because food early allergen introduction can prevent up to 80% of food allergies by training tolerance. Yeah. But it's not addressing this root cause, this barrier dysfunction. And, the, and one of the things that I have found that's, that's upset me is that we're doing this, we're causing, if you will, or allowing this barrier dysfunction to happen to our children the way I allowed it to happen to my son because we didn't know any better. Yeah. And so one of the things that Will Mixens has taken on and, and I myself is really that the company in some sense has become way more about education because how do we really, if, if my goal at the end of the day is to stop kids from getting sick or people from getting sick, I can never achieve that unless I'm educating them about what's making them sick in the first place. Right. And so um, actually next, next year um, I have a book coming out um, that goes through all the research sure. and um, talks through talks parents through all the steps they can take through reduce their child's risk of these diseases. Like I said, we have this podcast coming out and, you know, we're also releasing more products that are kind of focused on that because that's the goal, right? <laughs> coming back to what we talked about at the beginning, like, why are we here? What's the real goal? The goal is to prevent these diseases and okay, we, we can do this one thing, but we, we really need to get to the root cause. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, it was at one point somebody once explained it to me um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a hyper reaction of your immune system, but it actually doesn't sound like, it sounds like hyper is the wrong word here. It, it, it almost more sounds like your, your immune system's already on alert because these barriers are down and it's, it's picking up and it's doing what it needs to do. And unfortunately those, those immune responses can be lethal to us. You know, the anaphylactic shock, all the things it can, can pursue. What about allergies that come on later? I'm being a little selfish because um, I've developed a shellfish allergy. I never, I never had an allergy before 20 or 22. And now all of a sudden the rest of my life, they tell me the rest of my life um, that I, I'll never be able to eat shellfish again. Um, you know, I, I've heard that these, that, 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 Kids will outgrow the childhood allergies. I don't know the truth behind that. You know, it's just I, I hear these things. Um, but but I also hear that when you get an allergy as an adult, that's pretty much it. And so, um, you know, I'd love to know your thinking on that. Sure. So, again, I can speak to, I have no, in most of my career, I have no personal thinking. I can just repeat to you what's in the literature. Yeah. Um, and the, so I'll answer a few of those questions. So, why, so these same things that are causing damage in babies, right? It just like in everything else, babies are just more sensitive because the systems are laying down, their bodies are growing, all these things are happening that it's much easier to cause a problem in a baby than it is an adult that, that you're sort of in a stasis mode, right? Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't happen in an adult, right? You can, the same detergents, the same air pollution, the same whatever can be causing disruption to your barrier. And now your barrier potentially is weaker like this would be the theory. Your barrier is now weaker today than it was 10 years ago, or it's been disrupted in some way. Your microbiome, something has shifted. So now when you ate that shellfish, your immune system freaked out about it. And 10 years ago, it didn't freak out about shellfish because your barriers were sore, you know, and so the, that quality control system was working correctly, or it was, it was kept in check by the environment being correct. Um, so that's, and I think, so I think there's no such, it can't be the case that it's not solvable in an adult. It's probably that it's much harder, just like it was hard to disrupt your microbiome. It might be hard to fix it again. And some of that is because adults are difficult. Like mm -hmm. let's say that the root cause of microbiome disruption is bad diet. I'm just going to pick on bad diet. Right. But as you know, it's really hard to get adults to change their diet. It's really easy with a baby because you they're stuck in their chair and you could just change their diet. But with yeah. an adult, it's quite hard to change their diet because you can go reach for whatever you want. You can go drive yourself to the store, right? So if that were the cause, it, in that sense, it's harder to shift, you know, shift yours, especially if we don't know the, you know, we can't say like, ah, oh, it's the, the whatchamacallit bars that are causing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and, and so you're right that some kids do outgrow their allergies, but in that same thing, because their immune systems are still learning, right? So your immune system, just like your brain is developing for a long time, all through adolescence and everything. 
Although again, just like the brain, most development happens in the first three years, but that doesn't mean it stops. And so some children, their bodies do learn to tolerate it. Eventually the body is like, Hey, you know what? Those peanuts, they seem fine actually. So I'm just going to stand down when I see the peanuts um, or maybe the child's barriers have repaired themselves, you know, because our, our bodies do not want to be in a state of ill health. Mm-hmm. Their, our bodies are designed to try and repair themselves as much as possible. Right. So maybe there's some lucky kids that for whatever reason, and, and that would be great to understand because we can create the therapies and treatments to push everyone along that path. Sure. But some kids seem to be healing in the way that allows their immune system to calm down. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I want to be very clear that just because we know this level of science doesn't mean that we have all the answers, right? Like to that point, we don't know, we know that that's kind of what's happening to people, but like, how do we push someone down the path of healing versus getting worse? Science isn't there yet. You know, the therapies aren't there yet. Well, the science can't get there without, without the first question, right? I mean, the, the, exactly. why is, why is the most important question when, um, when trying to design something new and, you know, as we gain this understanding, now we can start looking at some of the, those other things, but we also know that, you know, medicine, you know, they say it's a practice, it's a practice on purpose, you know, it's not perfect. And so yep. trial error time, it, it, it takes a very, very long time, but you know, with any luck over the years, we're going to get this figured out. But the key is that we're answering the first question. Uh, one, uh, one thing I'd like to go back to, um, this is more of kind of a company culture type thing. So, so the listeners have heard me say so often about the importance of building um, organizations, having centralized core values, having the right people in your organization, the wrong people out, you know, people aligned to the core values, but core values are one step, one leg of the stool. Another very important leg for, for corporate success is, is a really strong sense of purpose. Um, you know, uh, purpose-driven companies, and we, we always define purpose as answering the question, why do you exist beyond making money? Making money, survive, you know, whatever you do with it, that's all the scorecard. But why do you really exist? And I think you just, you know, you really illustrated a great sense of purpose in, in your last commentary when you talked about, you know, really existing, I, I, as I would describe it, to, to keep kids from getting sick, at least from these causes. Um, is this something, purpose usually comes from the heart, but how have others been, you know, how have others been receiving this? And tell me how that's helped you with building your organization. And when I say building, I'm not talking just for about people who work for you, but also, you know, the doctors, the networks, um, you know, all getting involved. I'd love to hear your story on, on how purpose has really helped your success. Yeah, it's, it's, it's everything. Actually. I, I, I would not be as far along as we wouldn't be as far along as we are without that purpose, because I've been very clear from the beginning that the, the company exists to solve these, you know, these diseases and to make people's lives better. If we're not making people's lives net net better, then we're not achieving the goal. And so that, that, but you know, it's not just about solving diseases and it does mean we follow the science. It does mean, but we also take cost into account, right? So one of the things that I've gotten reamed at by, you know, investors for is that I keep our products priced lower than our competition. And that's, but it's intentional because when I did the math, I went through the data, like the U.S. data that's publicly available about the exact amount of money the average parent has, you know, or that different socioeconomic groups of parents have to spend on their babies. And we reverse engineered a product that would fit into that price point. Because if I'm not making this product accessible to most people, then there is zero reason for my company to exist. And I, and that is, that is me being obstinate. It is. That's a straight up obstinacy because um, and I say that in both the good and bad way, because, you know, it's lost me a lot of supporters, but it's gained me a ton of supporters. Like some of the people that I've worked with and done, you know, PR stuff, marketing, whatever, have done it at lower prices, have done it at for free, have done it more, put more of their heart and soul into it than I know they're giving their other clients because they care that I care. Yeah, that is, I, that is, and, and I'm hoping the listeners are getting this. Not every investor is a good investor. Not every customer is a good inv- customer. Not, I mean, if, if you really want to have success, people who are aligned to your purpose will help you get there. It is such an important piece. And I watch it happen all the time where, where companies start with good purpose and then they go down the path and then they start getting the investor advice and this, 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 and you know what? And then they're gone 10 years later. Because, um, you know, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't survive or they got sold and then, you know, and, and the whole thing just falls apart. Purpose-driven companies are always 
always more successful than their competition that's that's not purpose driven. And um, you know, a, a great highlight on the fact that you've got, you know, other companies that are stepping up to the plate helping you out all that kind of stuff because they believe in the same thing. It's it's essential. No, it totally is. And I actually have had to occasionally, like I have this person who does consulting work for me and actually, which reminds me, I have to call her again. And she hasn't sent me a bill. And I was like, you need to send me a bill for the work. I call you regularly. And she's like, you know, but I just really care about what you're doing. And it just, you know, I, I really want to help. And I was like, that's fine, but you have a business and you, you do need to send me a bill. And, um, you know, so uh, I think, like I said, we, it's not all about freebies. It's literally sometimes just people caring about the work. And, you know, you cannot, you cannot just hire, you know, you can't just hire a team of 20 people the day you start a company. Right. So you're always going to be reliant on consultants. And the classic problem of consultants is it's not their baby. They will never care as much as you do. But I will say that so many of the, the consultants or, you know, external members that we work with do seem to really care about this as if it's as if this was their baby. And that has made so much of the difference. Yeah, I think this is big. Um, we've got just about a minute and a half left. Uh, you know, I'd love, I'd love for, for people to know where to find you. You mentioned a book coming out, the podcast. Have you, has any of the episodes of the podcast been released or are they all getting released at once? They're all going to get released at once because I'm, I love Netflix now. Um, <laughs> they're all going <laughs> um, to get released at once in the beginning of October and they will be found at, this is, you know, because I specifically didn't want it to come off as promoting little mixins. It's really just to ask that and answer that question and yeah. the education. It's all on this website called fixingsick.com. Um, where fixing I'm fixing S I C K. S I C K. All one right. word. Okay, great. Fixingsick.com. Yep, but if you want the products and, and a whole ton of education that's also there, um, you know, again, in our knowledge center, it's at lilmixins.com, which is L-I-L-M-I-X-I-N-S.com. And I just noticed the similarity between fix and mix in those two things, and I had never <laughs> occurred to me before. I caught, I caught that. I wasn't sure. But um, but that's, you know, I think it's a great resource. I myself, I'm going to go check out that, that podcast when it comes out. I think it'll be really interesting to listen to. And hopefully our listeners will as well. So, you know, we are at the end of our time. I, I want to thank you for, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I love the and this is the first chance, especially to get to talk, tell people about the podcast. So I'm excited about that. So thank you. Well, it'll be fun. And uh, hope, hopefully we'll get a lot of, a uh, lot of listeners for that as well. So everybody, you know where, where it is. And, um, if, uh, if you need me, if you want to get a hold of her, you guys know how to do that as well. You can always get me at listener at transformativeexperts.com. Um, that's the, the quickest way to, to, to get to us. We can always get through you. You can also uh, register through the Voice America website and uh, come in and, um, and uh, get information from the show. We'd be happy to, to, to connect you and move you if you have more, more questions about this. So uh, again, it's been a, been a great interview. Really enjoyed it. And uh, for those of you listening, um, thank you for listening. And I will be with you again next week. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.